What does Jesus see as he looks out on a broken society? A sin-stained, pain-filled world. He sees a harassed and a helpless people. Sheep lost and vulnerable, torn down because they have no shepherd. And what's his response? He's filled with compassion. That's the heart of Jesus. And if we are a people after his own heart, that must be our heart too. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, there may be some listening who say, I understand that is the heart of Jesus, but I have a hard time cultivating my heart to be like his. If that is what my heart is to be and it's not, how, how could I ever get it there? Well, I think in order to share the heart of Jesus, and of course, we'll never share that perfectly, as imperfect as we are, but in order to share the heart of Jesus for our society and our world, I think we need to have a biblically shaped worldview that understands the true need of the human heart and what's truly broken with our society. And that starts down at the level of our relationship with God. And Jesus sees that a people who are out of relationship with God, but actually under the judgment of God, are a desperately needy people. And as we come to understand that, I think we begin to share something of that heart of Jesus. Yeah, I I love that truth, that as we see the need for Jesus, as we understand what it means to truly be under the judgment of God, I think one of the natural responses to that then is to probably have an increased compassion for a lost world. I think that's right, and I think over the course of Christian history, we've seen that as folk have given themselves really to the work of making Jesus known, and it's interesting as this passage goes on, we'll see it in this program and the next program, that's really where Jesus goes to with this. He wants to raise up workers who will bring his good news to the world. Well, let's see how he did that. Open your Bible, if you can, to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to begin a message entitled, A Powerful Message and an Urgent Need. Here is Jonathan. Well, I wonder how you feel as you consider the task before us to reach our land, our nation, with the good news of Jesus Christ. Ours is a very big country, 10 million square kilometers, the second largest in the world by land area. 36 million people spread over this vast expanse. Only a small percentage of them converted to Christ. A culture that seems largely unreceptive to the message. A church that often appears weak and fragmented. The task before us is immense. As we consider it, what should be our attitude? What should be our approach? Where should we begin? The end of chapter 9 is a kind of pivot point in Matthew's gospel. It's the moment at which Jesus clearly and very intentionally broadens the scope of his evangelistic mission to include his disciples in the work alongside him. But as Jesus looks out upon a lost and a sometimes hostile culture and prepares his disciples to go out on this mission, he gives us a window into his heart and into his mind. He gives us key insights into his strategy for reaching the lost. Three observations from this brief passage on the evangelistic outlook and strategy of Jesus Christ. And the first observation is simply this. Jesus perseveres despite opposition. When we left off the story of Jesus's life and ministry last time at verse 34, we had just completed another series of stunning, life-transforming miracles. 
And although there were evidences of real faith and real response to him among the people, the religious leaders were becoming increasingly opposed and increasingly hardened in their opposition. When Jesus drove out a demon back in verse 33, you may remember, the Pharisees, who were a group of religious leaders, highly respected, prominent in the community, they said this about him. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. I don't know how resilient you are in the face of discouragement and opposition. Most people can only handle so much of it. Most of us find serious opposition, harsh criticism, very difficult to overcome. Jesus has just been accused by the most respectable religious leaders, the most learned, the most upright in his society, of being an agent of Satan himself. After such a vicious attack, after facing such ugly and such hateful criticism, we might expect to read in verse 35 that Jesus went home to lick his wounds, to contemplate perhaps a change of career, a return to carpentry, an early retirement. We might anticipate that he would gather his disciples around him to share the burden of this discouragement and then to stew on all the cruel things that had been said and to replay them over in his mind. We might expect Jesus to sign himself off for a bit, for a bit of recovery time, to regroup and to be restored. But what does Jesus actually do? He redoubles his efforts. He clicks up the speed setting on the ministry treadmill, now from a power walk to a jog, and he gets moving. Matthew tells us in verse 35 that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus covered as much ground as he could, reached as many people as possible. Notice the determination and the focus involved here. The key word in verse 35 in the original is the word all or every. It's the same word in the original. He went through all the towns and villages, preaching the good news, healing every disease, and in the original it's repeated again, every sickness. Not only did Jesus redouble his efforts, but he made a point of not abandoning institutional Judaism in the process. Even though the religious leaders had made such a charge against him, he made a point of going to the synagogues to teach. It's a little intriguing in verse 35 that it speaks of their synagogues. I don't know if you noticed that. It's not entirely clear who uh, Matthew is referring to there, and we probably shouldn't hang too much on it. But I kind of wonder if he's referring back, at least in part, to the Pharisees of the previous verse. The Pharisees who were so opposed to Jesus and who were so prominent in the religious life of the time. He made a point of going to their synagogues. And as he went, he brought good news. Jesus never brought a message of bare condemnation. He didn't go around as an angry and a bitter man spouting fury. No, despite the opposition, he continued to proclaim the glorious message of God's unmerited favor for sinners. The message of his own grace and his own mercy. Grace and mercy soon to be revealed at the cross where he would hang and where he would die to purchase the forgiveness of sinners like me and like you. He kept preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he kept on validating that message through miraculous works as he had been validating it throughout Matthew's gospel thus far. Now, there is a wonderful lesson here for us about the person of Jesus Christ, about his character and about his heart. 
He perseveres in pursuing sinners. He perseveres in lovingly pursuing those who reject him, those who malign him, those who would soon send him even to his death. It's actually a reminder of the way in which he lovingly pursued you and lovingly pursued me. We're not a people who naturally welcome Jesus and love him. We're actually a people, the Bible tells us, whose hearts have been set against him. And yet, in his kindness, Jesus did not give up pursuing us. Some here will be familiar with the story of the famous 19th century Pastor Charles Simeon. I've probably alluded to his story before. Simeon is a kind of towering figure in the history of English evangelicalism, appointed pastor of Holy Trinity Church in the city of Cambridge in England about 200 years ago. Simeon came into his new role as a gospel preacher and Bible expositor. The congregation didn't like his ministry and didn't welcome his ministry, and they reacted against the gospel message that he brought. In those days, wealthy people uh, were able to rent pews. They paid a pew rent and held the right to sit in their particular pew. In their disgust at Simeon and his gospel, the message he proclaimed, the wealthy people of the church locked their pews and refused to show up on Sunday. And so those who came wanting to hear the message, wanting to hear the word, were forced to stand in the aisles and at the back of the church. Simeon, at his own expense, bought benches so that people could come in and sit down in the aisles and at the back, but the church authorities threw out the furniture that he had bought. I understand that this situation lasted for about a decade, about a decade when Simeon had to preach to a room of locked and empty pews, a decade of facing this giant visual aid of hateful reproach and opposition. I have to say I'm very glad for the seating arrangements we have here. I like our chairs very much. I meant to bring in actually to show you something I have at home, but I left it there this morning. A friend of mine was in Cambridge a couple of years ago when Holy Church was replacing its pews with movable chairs, as so many churches have. And the wreckage of all the pews was actually being put out into the garbage. And this friend of mine grabbed for me a piece of the pew from Holy Trinity Church, just a bit of trim for me to keep in my study as a reminder of, of of Simeon in the face of ugly opposition, ugly opposition from people who should have loved and supported him, opposition from respectable religious people. In the face of such opposition, Simeon kept preaching the gospel, preaching to those very people week by week. Well, I mention that because if you and I are going to be faithful in our day in making Jesus known, in living for him, in serving him, if we would be found faithful in our own generation, we're going to face opposition. That's the reality. That's the bottom line. We'll face hatred and we'll face scorn. It's just part of the package of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It goes with the territory. Jesus faced it, his apostles faced it, Simeon faced it, servants of the gospel have faced it down the generations and through the centuries, and we should expect to face it too. We'll face opposition from those who we might imagine would be most receptive to the gospel, most supportive of the work of the gospel. See, if Jesus had faced opposition from idol-worshipping pagans, we wouldn't have been at all surprised. We wouldn't have batted an eyelid at that but from religious leaders within Israel, from people committed to the scriptures who knew the scriptures from the Pharisees themselves. It defies logic. It doesn't make any sense. 
And it's just a warning and a reminder for us. If Jesus faced such opposition, such contempt, such scorn, we should expect to face it too. And in light of that reality, we do need to learn with the Spirit's help to persevere despite opposition, not to be thrown off course and not to be discouraged beyond measure. We need actually to learn to be spurred on by opposition, to redouble our efforts as Jesus does here, to widen our scope, to increase our resolve. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called A Powerful Message and an Urgent Need, part of our series, Kingdoms Colliding. And we'll get back to this look at Matthew chapter 9 in just a few moments. I hope you'll stay with us. Hey, I want to let you know that this is the final week to request your copy of The Names of Jesus, Experiencing God, and the Blessing of Knowing Him. This is a book that's written by Warren Wearsby, and it's a book that Jonathan has picked as our thank you gift to you for your financial support this month. Being listener-supported, we do depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. But as you give a gift of any amount, we want to say thank you by sending you this book called The Names of Jesus. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Again, here is Jonathan. Jesus perseveres despite opposition. That's the first lesson here about his evangelistic approach. And the next one is this. Jesus is motivated by compassion. Verse 36 When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As Jesus looked out on those crowds before him, he could have seen various things that day. He could have seen a people who failed to welcome him as they should have welcomed him as the Messiah. He could have seen a people whose sin would necessitate his journey to the cross. He could have seen a people whom he knew would reject him and call for his execution. But rather than see those things and look on them with anger or scorn, Jesus chose to look on them with compassion. What he chooses to see is their helplessness, their lostness, their need. And he says of them that these are sheep without a shepherd. Now, that idea and that imagery is not new. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 34, the Lord speaks an oracle of judgment against the leaders of Israel, whom he calls shepherds. And he says this, verse 2 of Ezekiel 34, you don't necessarily need to turn it up. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Now that was the crisis of leadership in Ezekiel's day. And as we look at the spiritual leaders of Jesus's day, as we look at the Pharisees who have so clearly rejected Jesus in verse 34, we see that things have not actually changed a great deal. Legalistic burdens for the people Harsh leadership, but precious little shepherding. In the oracle of Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord pronounces judgment on those corrupt leaders of Israel. But then he goes on to make a very great promise. He says this, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. 
as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. The Lord promises through Ezekiel that he himself will come to rescue his scattered and his oppressed people, a people lost and confused for lack of good leadership. He himself will care for them. He will lead them. He will save them. As Jesus looked out on the crowds in the towns and villages of Israel before him, he had compassion for them because he saw that they were a harassed and a helpless people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The words translated here, harassed and helpless, have the literal sense of being torn and thrown down. Sheep who have been attacked by predators. It's kind of violent language, injured, vulnerable, needy of protection and of care. And as Jesus looked out on those crowds before him, he saw a people desperately in need of help and of healing, a people in need of leadership, in need of a king, in need of a savior. Yes, the crowds frequently rejected him and would ultimately call for his crucifixion. He knows all that. But as Jesus looked on them that day, he saw not their rebellion and he saw not their foolishness. He saw their need and he had compassion. It's a beautiful insight, really, into Jesus's disposition. It's a wonderful window into his heart. And as we hear Jesus's assessment of the crowds before him that day, we do see as well how contemporary his verdict is. We see how little has changed. Culture has moved on, but the human heart, it really hasn't changed at all. Harassed and helpless, torn and thrown down like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that an apt appraisal? of the people in our communities, the people driving by our door even now, the people who fill our city and are alongside us in our workplaces. It's easy to look out on our community and feel frustrated or feel slighted that people don't take an interest in the gospel. People aren't inclined to follow our king to acknowledge our savior. It's easy to look out with annoyance or antagonism but if we look on our community with the gracious eyes of Jesus, we do see, don't we, a people who are harassed and helpless. We see people whose lives are broken by sin, scarred by relational wounds, consumed by materialism and ambition, enslaved by addiction. We're all now very familiar with the opioid crisis, the abuse crisis across our land. The public health agency has just announced that it's investigating whether untimely deaths from overdoses are bringing down the average life expectancy now in Canada as they have in the United States. It seems pretty likely that the crisis is having that level of an impact on our nation now. We're all too familiar with the ugly realities of gun violence in our communities. We can hardly ignore or forget that reality this week. We grieve with those affected by that awful incident in Toronto. We listen helplessly as we hear stories of bereavement, of loss, of promising young lives cut short, of other lives maimed. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus see as he looks out on a broken society? A sin-stained, pain-filled world. He sees a harassed and a helpless people. Sheep lost and vulnerable, torn down because they have no shepherd. And what's his response? He's filled with compassion. 
That's the heart of Jesus. And if we are a people after his own heart, that must be our heart too. That must be our reaction to the world around us, not frustration or antagonism, but a heart of compassion. Well, Jesus is moved with compassion, but having been moved by compassion, what does he then do? What does his compassion drive him to in practical terms? Well, it drives him very interestingly to appeal for co-workers. And that's our third observation here, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. As I've mentioned already, this is really a key moment in the Gospel of Matthew. So far, Jesus has essentially been the one doing all the action, sending out the message, performing the miracles, and so on. But now at this pivot point, he very intentionally begins to involve his disciples in this kingdom project as he prepares to send them out on mission in the next chapter. It is, of course, a basic principle of good leadership that a leader needs to know how to delegate well and appropriately. I'm beginning to learn a little bit about the American Civil War just at the moment, and I'm, I'm finding out a bit about Jefferson Davis, who, as you may know, was the president of the Confederate States during that war. I think it's fair to say that Davis was not considered to be a great leader, not particularly strong in his leadership gifts. And some would say that his leadership failings contributed significantly to the defeat of the Confederate project. But in any case, I gather that one of his key weaknesses in leadership was a reluctance to delegate. He, he micromanaged. He couldn't hand things over very easily and very well. See, good leaders, they need to be able to delegate. It's a basic principle. And so any decent management guru or leadership consultant would look at Jesus here at the end of Matthew chapter 9 and give him the big thumbs up. He's taken the movement as far as he can on his own. And to reach that next stage of growth, he needs to train, he needs to equip, he needs to deploy a team. He needs to delegate to grow and to expand his kingdom. And on one level, that's perhaps true. It's, it's good strategy and good leadership that Jesus is exercising here. But all that having been said, there is still something surprising and I think counterintuitive to what Jesus is doing. I mean, here is the all-powerful, divine Son of God looking at a situation of real need, people who are lost and helpless, sheep without a shepherd and so on, a situation he could address in an instant through his miraculous power. A single word from his mouth would bring all the help and all the healing and all the salvation that's needed. But he chooses instead to involve a group of feeble and ordinary people. People who will show themselves in this book of Matthew to be very flawed, very sinful, very fickle, very weak. But nonetheless, that is Jesus's strategy. That is his approach. That is his great plan. Well, that is where we have to pause today's message here on Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And we're going to get back to this teaching next time. I do hope you'll make it a point to tune in. If you happen to miss a broadcast, though, you can always listen to each and every program online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is able to stay on this station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called The Names of Jesus. It's written by Warren Wiersbe and 
Jonathan, why did you pick this book? Well, here at Encounter the Truth, our great aim is to facilitate encounters with the truth of God's Word and through the Word of God to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our aim is not simply to build knowledge, but a personal experience of the Savior. And we think that this resource will just be a tremendous help for you as you go forward in seeking to know Jesus and then walk with Jesus. It's an exploration of who Jesus is through his names as we learn them in Scripture. We think you're going to find it encouraging. We think it'll be a rich study for you. We trust that you'll enjoy reading it. Well, we'd love to send you a copy. As our way of saying thank you for supporting this ministry, you can find out more at give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. That might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH. Or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For producer Mark Bretta and our Bible teacher Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.